One of the things that I said a couple years ago when I arrived, um, but that everybody in the church needs to constantly know, is that um, it's my commitment to have no less than 12 guest speakers every year for a number of reasons that are very important. That is, nobody's interesting 52 weeks a year, and hardly anybody can be interesting 42 weeks a year, you know? And so I need time off from doing that. Um, preaching is very grueling work. It's very good work, but it's very hard. It's very hard work. Um, secondly, we as a people need to be able and, and trained to hear from multiple voices. We should not become dependent on one or just a couple voices primarily because it's very hard not to slide into some kind of cult of personality or those kinds of things. Um, so that's really important too. Plus, this church needs me to have weeks during the year where I'm, I'm focusing my attention on other things than just my sermon. Either spending time connecting with more people, investing in more leaders, thinking about what we're going to do over the next year, all that kind of thing. That has to happen sometimes. And those weeks that I'm not preaching are critical for that. Also, my family is going to just need me to be with them and not even think about you people for about three weeks a year. And I need to be just totally out. And so you can, and you cannot write a sermon and be on vacation. It doesn't work that way. And so for a number of reasons, and also because high, um, one of the things I said about High Point is I want High Point to be a teaching church. I want it to be a place where we train people for ministry. And every once in a while, that does mean you give somebody a shot. And so be, for all those reasons, I'm, I'm totally committed to this. Um, now, it so happens that our guest speaker this time is my brother. Before you think that that is just a practice in cronyism, um, <laughs> Uh, I am by far at the shallow end of the gene pool in my family. Um, my, my big brother has degrees in undergrad in geophysics, a master's degree from UW in engineering, a PhD in engineering from UC Davis, an MA in theology from Wheaton College, and is in the middle of another MA in evolution e ecological studies at Davis. After which he's done, he said he's going to treat himself to uh, a lackadaisical course in Greek from Fuller. So, educationally, he should be up to the task. He currently serves in the Army Corps of Engineers in a think tank group that solves problems um, all over the country and the world. He was recently in Cambodia, and he's been in Afghanistan a number of places solving hydrological problems. Um, but once a month, he preaches at College Life, which is, uh, which is a campus ministry to college students at UC Davis, which is ranked eighth in public universities. They're ahead of us. We need to catch them. And... Um, and, it's, and he has really emerged as um, an engineer able to embrace his dorkiness and to be a good preacher of God's word. And so, um, yeah, and so he's my more accomplished and more interesting brother. And here's the thing. I want you to welcome him, but what I really want you to do is I want you to listen to him. Why don't you come stand? So I'm Nick's brother, Stanford. And it may have already occurred to you that Stanford is kind of an eccentric name. Generally does. I'd be willing to bet that you don't know another Stanford. And there's a very good reason for that. You see, the name Stanford peaked in popularity around 1910. This is actual data from the U.S. Census Bureau. Um, not only that, but the name Stanford dropped to less than one, babies, one baby in a million, a full decade before I was born. <laughs> now, many of you know my mom. Um, she happens to be Nick's mom. Um, and uh, the, uh, 
she's frankly delightful, right? I mean, she's, she, she's living with us right now, and she'll be back in a few weeks, and uh, she's fantastic. And it, it, it's, it's very, it's very um, noble that my parents would choose to honor their parents by naming their two boys after our grandfathers. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, it could have been worse. I could have been named after the other grandfather. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm being insufficiently respectful. <laughs> Pastor Nikki. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, this. Uh, the, the whole task of naming kids, it's a lot of responsibility. In fact, sometimes it just seems like too much responsibility for some of us to execute effectively. <laughs> Wait for it. <laughs> There's this comedian, uh, Louis C.K., who says something about this I like. Um, here's what he says. He said, naming your kids is a lot of responsibility. You know what's amazing to me? You can name your kid anything you want. Isn't that incredible? There are literally no laws. There ought to be a couple of laws. <laughs> but it turns out in some countries there are laws. Here's a, here's a list of names that have recently been rejected by the government of Sweden. And it's not just Sweden. Um, apparently, in Denmark, when you have a child, you have to, you have to vet the name with the, with the government of Denmark. And uh, the government of Denmark, over the last few years, have rejected 20% of all names submitted by parents. And the, uh, the reason they give is to protect children from psychological trauma. But the reason there's so much pressure in naming a kid is because that name is going to last a long time. But will it really? I mean, a lifetime is too long to be named Google. But even the truth is that even these memorable names will be forgotten pretty quickly. Names are exceedingly forgettable. And that's one of the reasons that cemeteries are so compelling. Now, cemeteries aren't creepy because they're collections of human remains. Well, okay, maybe, maybe a little bit. But they're not primarily creepy because they're collections of bones. They're primarily creepy because they're collections of names without narratives. The names are preserved but the stories are lost. They're disembodied names floating in granite. It's like, it's like you're surfing the web and you hit a broken hyperlink. It's a string of characters that's evidence that it once, there once was a story behind that, but we can no longer access it. These, these syllables that no longer correspond to anything beyond themselves. And if you think about that for like, I don't know, more than 10 seconds, it's kind of terrifying. 
We're haunted by the idea that our names will someday pass into the abyss of obscurity, that no one will remember who we are, and that we don't fundamentally matter. I mean, why do you and the people around you work so hard? I mean, for some of us, I guess, um, there's a fear of failure. Maybe, maybe there's a few young men who feel like if I could get a good job, I could finally get a girl to date me. Um, there's a, but, you know, maybe a desire to achieve some measure of comfort or security or power. But for many of us, it's this quiet dread that no one will remember my name. That your existence will be unremarkable and that your name will be lost in the relentless march of time lost into the abyss of history's ruthless forgetfulness. So we go to work, we go to class, we go to the gym, we go to church, we try to innovate or we play at at athletic or artistic achievement. We try to build unique residential structures and we try to publish in the top journals in the hope that we can do something that will make us memorable, that'll make our names last. Which brings us to today's passage. This morning, I'm going to look at two passages that sit side by side in the first book of your Bible. Genesis 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel, and Genesis 12, which is the story of Abraham. And I'm going to assert that there are textual clues in these stories which let us know that they're supposed to be read side by side. They're supposed to be read as a contrast. And so as I read the passages this morning, see if you can catch those clues for what these passages will say about how to make a name that will last. Let's start with Genesis 11. Genesis 11:1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And now nothing they propose will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Chapter 12. Then then we'll pick up Abraham's story in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of earth shall be blessed 
So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and he took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Sechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country, to the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of Yahweh. Then Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. What we're going to see this morning is that Genesis 11 and 12 contrast two possible paths to build an unforgettable name. Two visions of how to forge a name that will outlast your heartbeat. A you that's going to last longer than your little carbon collection. But it starts with a critical contrast. So uh, um, I'm up here this week with Adam Darbone, who was, uh, who was, the, preaching in, was the pastoral intern last year, and uh, Nick mentored him last year, and um, before that, he was with me, um, and uh, he, I was one of his mentors for a couple of years. So this poor kid's had three years of Gibson mentorship, and uh, so he, we sent him off to Trinity to set that thing right. Um, but I was talking to him this weekend, and I was like, so you know, what are some of the big things you learned mentoring under Nick? And one of the things he said to me was really interesting. He said that, um, that when Nick looks at a passage of Scripture, he doesn't just look at, he doesn't just ask the question, what does this text say? He also asks the question, why is this text here? How does it relate to what comes before and what comes after? And that's a question you have to ask about this text. Why are these texts in juxtaposition? And I would argue that there's a textual clue that we should read them side by side as a contrast. Did you see it? Look with me in Genesis 11.4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then in Genesis 12, 2, God says to Abraham, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. The text is asking us to compare these two visions for how to make, how to make a name. And it, I mean, it's fundamentally asking us the question, what are the differences in these two visions to make a name? And this morning, I'm going to give you four. And it's going to start with choose venture over huddling. Choose venture over huddling. So the men of Babel, they build this big tower, right? And the first couple dozen times I read through this, I felt like there was a lot of testosterone in this passage, right? They're like, we're gonna, we got brick, and we're going to build a tower, and it's going to be awesome, and then we're going to eat meat and watch football, right? Like, there's, it's a very, very masculine passage. And, um, and I just said, you know, the, the answer's easy. These guys, these guys are proud. Um, but then what happens, like with almost every text in the passage, is that on like the 37th read, there's something there that I hadn't seen before. See if you can catch it. They said, 
Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What do you find behind the bravado and butt slapping? It's fear. They're afraid, and they should be. They just moved into a new spot on a Mesopotamian floodplain, keyword plain, no, no good defenses, and if you move into a fertile part of a floodplain, chances are somewhere and live there first. And so what did they do with their fear? Where do they turn in their fear? Well, they turn to technology and social planning. Now, it's kind of funny to think of brick and mortar as these, like, great technological advancements, right? Like, that's kind of, but, but that's, that's how this passage starts out. They, uh, you know, they, they, they move to this new place that has these new materials, and, um, and they, you know, they, it allows them to build, to make brick, which allows them for really the first time to have multi-story structures. You know, this is why you bring in the engineer for this kind of analysis and exegesis, right? Um, and uh, the, uh, the, you, they can build these multi-story structures, and so, you know, what, what, what can they do now? They can build a wall. They can build a wall that will keep them out and us in. A wall that will keep out the rest of the violent and scary world. But look at how this contrasts with God's promise to renew the world through Abraham. Verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Abraham, Go from your country and your family and your father's house and everything that is vaguely familiar to a land I will show you. So Abraham went, as Yahweh had told him. Which brings us to our first contrast. The men of Babel huddled in pursuit of comfortable security with people like themselves. Whereas Abraham ventured into the terrifying unknown with this kind of trans-tribal vision, willing to do life with people who aren't quite like him. And so what's going on here is these are both attempts to undo the fall, right? The fall is when things started going bad several chapters earlier, and we have two attempts to undo the fall. And the men of Babel, the Babel project is an intent to undo the fall with technology and social planning. Does that sound familiar? Primetime television for the last three weeks has been overrun with people from both parties, with nice hair, big smiles, fancy suits, with the same message. You are in danger. You should be afraid. But if we just trust in the right political vision for America, you will be protected and prosperous. But God's plan to restore and renew the fractured social fabric is not in huddling with those like you and trying to implement a political vision. It's an unremarkable people trusting God in his risky ventures. Now, for some of you, these risky ventures that will come up will be game changers. They'll include a change of vocation, a change of location. Maybe it'll be the opposite. Maybe it'll include an unexpected staying. And there's a reason that this is one of the big, this is the second most popular missions verse in the Bible, right? Because it could include a change of hemispheres. But for some of you who maybe been in the Christian culture for a couple of years or a couple of decades, um, it might mean wisely trimming some of your Christian commitments so you can spend more time in your neighborhood. 
And for some of you, the risky venture that God is calling to you is this church. I can kind of, you know, I like coming here. There's a lot of excitement. Um, the church has momentum. It's, it's really, I can, I can kind of, I, I, I don't know this. I don't know you, but I, I can imagine that there are some of you here who have been coming for a little while who, who ha- have this, who say, you know, there's this guy and he says these insightful, if slightly offensive things. And I, I leave, I leave feeling much wiser and a little bad. And, uh, you know, but, but, but for the first time, there's this, there's this kind of pole that I, can, that, that, that I can organize my life around and things are making sense. But then I look around at the church people and I say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure they're like me. I'm not sure I could become part of a church. For you, the risky venture that God is calling you to is community. Um, so the, the night I talked about this passage at our, at our campus ministry, there was a new guy, and um, this guy was just as cool as could be. Like, just, just everything. He had the backward floppy cap. He was just as cool as could be. And I, I started talking to him, and he turns, out, he turns out he's a really interesting and talented guy um, who's the front man in a hardcore band. Now, if you don't know what that means, that means that he screams artistically. It turns out he's awesome at it. Um, I brought a clip. Anyway, so he shows up at our, our campus ministry, and um, and I'm talking about this passage, and he and he, you know, he's kind of kind of rolling over the words that God says to Abraham in his head, and he realizes that the risky venture that God is calling him to is to take the next step to become part of this Christian community, which turns out to be a Disney movie night. I mean, here's this guy who, who oozes cool like I sweat. And for him, the risky venture that God is calling him to involves Aladdin. And so you'd think that someone like someone with this much social cachet would, would not find it difficult to walk into a room and enjoy a familiar tale of a blue genie and a steam-sealing monkey. But he told, as he told the story a couple of weeks later, he said, that kind of thing takes courage. Because when he walked in that room, he was assured that the people in that room would probably not be a lot like him. And that's because community takes courage. It's a venture. And so if, if the venture that God is calling you to is to become part of this church, you need to join a small group. And you need to do it now, because this is the perfect time. You need, to get, you need to go out after the service to the table, sign your name up, and get the email from John. And what's going to happen is you're going to show up at a house, and it's going to be full of people who you don't know and won't be like you. And that's the point. Community is a venture. If you want to make a name that'll last, choose venture over huddling. And second, 
become conduits of blessing. You want to make a name that will last? Become conduits of blessing. Um, Genesis 12.2 makes the case that from the very beginning, God's plan of cosmic rescue is not something that happens to you. It's something that happens through you. Um, look with me again at verse 12.2, um, which a lot of people will, would say that, that Genesis 12.2 is the thesis statement of the Bible. It's the transition from Act 2 to Act 3, from backstory to actual story. And God says to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great. That's a fantastic Bible promise. I will bless you and make your name great, period. Semicolon? Can I hear a comma? The thought isn't done. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Which brings us to the second very simple contrast. The, the Babel project, it was about them. The call of Abraham wasn't. God's care and interest never stop with you. We were not designed to consume blessing. We were designed to transmit it. You want to build a name that will last? You need to move from being a blessing receptacle to being a conduit of blessing. Or uh, let me use some plainer language. You need to quit being a blessing bucket. Blessing bucket. You need to quit being a blessing bucket. There's this thing about the design of buckets is they only have one hole. You put things in them. You need to move from being a blessing bucket to being a blessing hose. Let me round out this point with a, with a story. Um, so last year I sat in on a, uh, on, on a seminar over at UC Davis um, on the evolution of religion. And so the, uh, the Department of Evolution and Ecology at UC Davis is perennially top three, often number one. It was a fantastic seminar. It was very interesting. We read a lot of interesting papers. We read a couple of interesting books. Great discussion. Um, but the most interesting part about the seminar was the PhD student leading it. He's one of these like, great eccentric people that you meet on a college campus. He was a professional dancer. And he got into evolutionary biology because he was interested if there was some fundamental aspect of human nature that could be capitalized upon to make people good. Kind of a, kind of a terrifyingly noble um, motivation. So anyway, I'm a, one morning I'm sitting in a coffee shop. I usually write my talks in the coffee shop before work. And, uh, and he comes in and sits down. And this is early on. In the, and, and so we just kind of, we recognize each other, but I haven't said much in class yet. And, um, and he comes in, he sits down next to me. And there I am. I've got my Bible open. And I've got Derek Kidner's Genesis commentary sitting right there. And he just looks at me like, dude, you are so busted. Anyway, he sits down and we start talking about religion and we start talking about his quest to find a, a biological pathway for human goodness. And, and he says to me, he's like, he says, you know, I just don't think religion does the job. Because what ends up happening is in religion is you draw a circle. You, you, you make an us-them distinction and you end up being good to those, to those us, to those in the circle, but you, it, it has no real moral implications or even negative moral implications to, to them. And I, you know, I, I listened for a while and I heard him out and I you know, asked some, some, some uh, clarifying questions. Um, but what I, what I realized is what he was describing, he was describing the Babel Project. 
And actually, in the Babel Project, they literally draw a circle. They build a wall. So the inside the wall is us, and outside the wall is them. And so I said to him, I, I, said, I introduced him to the, to the verse, to uh, Genesis 12, 2, and this is essentially what I said. I said, you know, the worship of the Christian God from the very beginning has claimed that it is only, that it is only authentic if it exists primary, that the Christian community is only authentic if it exists for those that don't belong to it. And that is a fundamentally different vision of God and religious community that you're going to have to come to terms with before you write that thing off. But this idea that our story and community should exist primarily for those that don't belong to them, this is a theme that gets picked up seamlessly in the New Testament. Look with me at the, at the uh, connection between Genesis 12.2 and 2 Corinthians 5.15. In Genesis 12.2, I will make you your name great so that you will be a blessing. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.15. And Jesus died for all. Now that is a great verse. I mean, if you're looking for a verse that summarizes the gospel, Jesus died for all is a great one. Except it's only half a verse. Jesus died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Um, Tim Keller summarizes the idea like this. He says, whenever, whenever someone sees God for who he really is, they lose their consumer mentality. God will never bless you except to be a blessing. So you want to build a name that will last? First, choose blessing, or choose venture over huddling. Second, quit being a blessing bucket. Become a conduit of blessing. And third, consider generational timescales. Consider generational timescales. Let me just front load the contrast here. Um, the men of Babel, they had a, they had a single generation myopia. It was, for them, it was about us and our generation and our name and our accomplishments. But the, the story of Abraham has a multi-generational timescale. Look with me at, at, 12, 7, at Genesis 12.7. <clears throat> the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Um, here's the crazy thing about God's promise to Abraham. He never saw it. Um, now, if you're kind of new to this, this story, I think it'd be a totally legitimate question to ask, why is that okay? Why is it okay that God's running around making promises to people who, that they never see? Well, it's because God builds things on generational timescales. You may never see the full fulfillment of God's promises to you. Abraham didn't. But it's because you're building something bigger than yourselves. This thing we're doing, it's got timescales of generations. And so it seems to me that there are two implications of this. First, we need to consider parenthood part of our spirituality. And second, we need to, we need to build faith communities that are hospitable to the generations who are coming of age. First, we need to consider parenthood part of our spirituality. Okay, listen, I get it. The kid thing, it's hard. These are mine. We could, around these parts, these are called the California Cousins. Um, and uh, 
let me first start by saying I love being a dad. It's amazing. It's incredible. This thing that's going around with men of my generation where they put this off as long as possible, it's silly. Being a dad's amazing. But it's also hard. And that's one of the reasons, you know, my wife said, you know, we would have six if we started earlier. But we didn't. We were married nine and a half years before we had kids on purpose. Because we, partially, partially because we bought into this generational narrative that kids are hard. But what we did is we Christianized it. We said, you know, if we want to be venturers, if we want to be conduits of blessing, you know, there, there's, we just can't deal with a bunch of little, you know, conduit pluggers running around our ankles, right? Like, these are impediments to blessing. Um, and, uh, but it was this story in part that helped build my theology of children. Um, it helped me understand that having kids and really investing in them is normative to the Christian story because God tells his stories in generations. So we put in the work it takes to raise children, children who are venturers, who are conduits of blessing. Because he's telling your story in generations. And for those of you who are single, who you know, might have tuned out at this point, you know, if you get married... You need to marry someone who's going to build generations with you. And that means you probably should consider more than if she looks good in a sweater. All right, second. We need to build faith communities that are hospitable to new generations as they come of age. Okay, here's one of my life goals. One of my life goals is to hate the music at my church when I'm 50. To hate the music at my church when I'm 50. Because that probably means that it's welcoming to the 20-year-olds. You know why? Because I don't want to go to church to be a blessing bucket. I want to build generations. If one of the themes of Genesis is that God's plans unfold on multi-generational timescales, it falls to the mature generations to be welcoming to the to the new ones. And that means that you make space for their culture and their contributions. But the younger generations, the generations that are coming of age, they also have to take into account that they are part of a story of generations. And they need to look to the generations that have gone before them, that have lived life, and might just have some idea of how to do it. And often they need to just quit their whining and learn. Because we're in a story of generations. All right. So you want to build a name that will last? Choose venture over huddling. Quit being a blessing bucket. Consider generational timescales. And finally, build altars instead of ziggurats. Build altars instead of ziggurats. You see, the final big contrast between these passages is the kind of religious structures that, that um, the men of Babel and Abram, Abraham built. Look with me in, um, in verse 11:4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. 
and let us make a name for ourselves. Now this, uh, this verse, a tower with its top in the heavens, it, um, it, it, uh, it came to mind the other day. I, I, I just arrived at Nick's house and, uh, and Nick was like, um, hey, you wanna see my garden? Um, I don't know if you've seen Nick's garden. But his tomatoes are like a tower with a top in the heavens. Um, these tomato plants are three Rachels tall. All right, maybe two Rachels and a Jude. But I mean, they're, they're up there, right? Like um, when he wanted to get, when he wanted to get um, wire mesh to, to kind of hold their structure, he couldn't go to Home Depot. The only place he could go to find wire mesh tall enough was an elk farm. Yeah. <laughs> But here's what, here's what most commentators think are going on in this passage. What the men of Babel are building is, uh, is a Babylonian ziggurat. Um, and so here's how this probably went down. The men, of, the men of Babel built a wall. But really, how, how well have walls done in the history of walls? Walls do not have a particularly strong track record. And so they said, you know, we need more than walls. You know what we need? We need a protector. What we really need is a God. And so the problem in the, Medi- in the kind of the Mesopotamian worldview is that, you know, you don't just need a God. You need a, you need a good God. You need a God that's strong enough to protect you and, and prosper you. But the problem with, like, those kind of gods is they're a little bit like fi- dependable fantasy football running backs. There's just not enough of them to go around. And so they say, well, we, we've got this new technology. We've got brick and mortar, and we can build high And so let's build a tower to the heavens that's worthy of a good God. And he'll come and he'll prosper and protect us. You know, maybe a LaShawn McCoy type, or at least a a Darren McFadden who has injury risk but a little upside, as long as we don't get stuck starting the Dolphins' backfield. Now contrast these religious structures with the religious structures that Abraham builds. Oh, I have a verse. I need to read. Genesis 12, 7 and 8. So he built an altar to Yahweh who appeared to him. And then he walks a long ways. I mean, the text just names a bunch of places, but you have to realize is these places are very far apart. He walks a really long way. And then it says, and there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And so the men of Babel build this really impressive ziggurat. And Abram just kind of walks around and makes a couple of rock piles, like something my three-year-old does. And if you're new to this story, you could look at that and you could say, aren't the men of Babel fundamentally more religious? And the answer would be yes. And that's the problem. You see, the Babel project is this closed conversation that tries to manage God by putting him in our debt. 
But the Abraham Project, it's an open conversation that listens for God's guidance and responds to his agenda. You know, the men of Babel, they say, they say three times, let us, in two verses. They kind of build this thing. And the, I mean, the whole principle here is that we're going to do something that's, that's big enough that if God accepts it, it will put him in our debt. And this is the fundamental impulse of religion to perform in such a way that will put God in our debt. So he has to protect us and prosper us. And like, you know, it, it, building a ziggurat, I'm, I, I haven't done that lately, I don't know about you, but, but these days, you know, religion has been secularized and it's turned into morality, really, and, or, 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 you know, the spiritual disciplines, and we feel like, you know, if we do enough things or if we're good enough, that will put God in our debt and he will have to prosper us and protect us. Now, to those of you who've been a Christian a while, that might seem a little crass. But I see this on the other side all the time. People who have been Christians for decades. And, and then something terrible happens. And they end up saying something like, you, you know, I've, I've done this thing. I was generous. I was kind. I, was, I did the Christian thing. Why did this happen to me? And the, the implication there is the same. I did the religion. God owes me. Here's the thing. The God, of Babel does, the, the God of the Bible does not play the Babel game. He will not be ma- managed by your religion. He will not be put in debt by your morality. He wants you to listen. And that's why these little piles of rock that, that Abraham builds are fundamentally more satisfying than the great Tower of Babel. They're monuments to listening. All right, let me, uh, let me wrap this up with a story. Um, so these, the, there's these two young people in our ministry. <clears throat> there's these two young people in our ministry, Brant and Onda. Um, and uh, when, Brant first, when Onda first met Brant, he had just gotten into metalworking, and he made himself this ring. I saw it. It's amazing. Um, it's, like, it's like equal parts gorgeous and masculine, right? Like, it's, it's like, it's a great ring. And so she, she, she met him, and they were just chatting, and um, she's like, she found out she, he made the ring, and she's like, dude, that's amazing. You need to make me something. And like, what do you, what do, you say, right? Like, like it, it's, it's a new social situation where you say no. It's like, okay. Um, and uh, anyway, so, uh, so two years later, they're, uh, they're walking through the park, and, uh, and Brant says to Honda, hey, remember, remember that ring I said I'd make you? I finished it. That might be the most ridiculously romantic thing I've ever heard. Um, at the end of the last service, someone came up to me and said, you got that on Reddit, didn't you? Um, because apparently this story has made the front page of Reddit and has gone viral. No, these are my friends, Brant and Anda. Um, I just don't want you to think I'm... I'm okay, um, anyway. Um, I went to their wedding. Um... <laughs> But here's the thing, you know, Brand didn't give Onda the ring so that she'd marry him. I don't care if it's the greatest ring you've ever heard of. Onda's not br- marrying Brandt over a piece of jewelry. It would be offensive to suggest that the ring was even part of the decision. The ring is a symbol of relationship. He gave her the ring as a recognition of the bond that had grown between them. 
and as a commitment to cultivate that bond indefinitely, whatever comes down the road for them. And that's a picture of the difference between the Babel project and Abraham. A difference between the ziggurat and the altars. The fundamental difference between religion and the life of faith. Religion is like giving the girl the ring so that she'll marry you. Faith in Jesus is like giving the girl the ring as if to say, you're great, and I'm in on this wherever it goes. And that's why Abraham's name is memorable. And it is again and again as the story transitions into its culmination in Jesus. We see in the New Testament again and again that Abraham's, Abraham's name becomes synonymous with faith. In, in Romans 4.3, it says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And in James 2, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So you want to make a name that'll last? You need to choose venturing over huddling. You need to stop being a bucket and become a conduit of blessing. You need to do that with a mind to generational timescales. But you can only do any of that if you reject the Babel plan and do it out of gratitude for faith and redemption in Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that, uh, that Abraham's name was not based on his morality. Um, the very next verse shows us that it wasn't particularly exemplary, um, but that you called him and you sustained him, and he was a friend of God and an altar builder and a person of faith. And that gave him the energy to be a venturer and a conduit who looked at generational timescales. I, I pray the same for us. I pray for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.